please go with me to Romans chapter 12. We'll continue on in this wonderful passage. Some of you may have figured out now why we've not gone through the whole book of Romans, um, because um, we'd be there for like four more years, uh, particularly if we went out at this pace. So I want to read to you guys, as you're turning to Romans chapter 12, I want to read to you a portion from our membership covenant, uh, a small portion of it. I think it's quite applicable to what we'll be talking about today. It says this, Together we will spur one another on to love and good deeds. We will meet with one another consistently, pray for one another regularly, and serve one another selflessly. We will share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our example. We will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another in accordance with the New Testament understanding of church discipline and restoration. If you have your Bibles in Romans 12, verse 1, let's start there. He says, Paul says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourself, your body sorry, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Whew, some heavy words, I think, from Paul, but this is what we read last week. Uh, we are told that in the light of the gospel, in light of what God has done as recorded in chapters 1 through 11, it is reasonable worship that we would offer up our life as this sacrifice. So because of what God has done, the only, and just to put emphasis on it from last week, when we talked about spiritual worship actually probably being better understood as reasonable worship or rational worship, uh, what Paul's really saying is that it is like the essence of foolishness for your life to not be this sacrifice in light of what God has done in chapters 1 through 11. It is utter foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is that since God has done this work, that this is the result of it. And that is a sacrifice that is living holy and acceptable. The sacrifice that we talked about last week is a living killing. And the thing is, this idea of a living killing, that's the sacrifice is killing, but yet we're called to be living, only makes sense in the realm of the gospel. And that concept doesn't, doesn't make sense anywhere else. It makes sense in light of the gospel. We die to ourselves and are now alive to Christ. That's the dying and the living. We die to ourselves, we are alive to Christ. Now the sacrifice, living, holy, acceptable, is the metaphor that Paul would have us to know in order to understand what it is to be a Christian. Um, yeah, I don't want to pick, just as a side note here, so many sermons today are how to be better people, uh, how to be better individuals, and Paul's point is neither of those. It's how to be a follower of Jesus and a follower of Jesus within the body of Christ. That's Paul's where he's driving this at. How to be a follower of Jesus, not just a better moral person. And also, therefore, how to, how to live that in light of the body of Christ. So then he gives us this picture of this sacrificed life, right? That's after verse 1. This picture of the sacrificed life, one that is not conformed to the world, but transformed by the gospel. Again, not this necessarily inward versus outward concept, but it is a whole self. It is, it is him talking about our whole lives being transformed. And this transformation is going to come about by this renewing of the mind, which produces a transformed life. One special note that I want to capitalize on us, capitalize for us before we move on, is kind of to put an exclamation point on this thought that Paul is not in this context talking to individual Christians. He's talking to Christians who are part of a body. 
And we spend so much time focusing on how we become better people or, or even how we become better Christ followers. And we do that oftentimes not in the context of the body. And so we are basically what it looks like is it looks like, you know, 30 people or however large the church is, a thousand people. And they're all headed in different directions, somehow becoming more like Jesus, but not in the context of the body. How does the body move forward? It's only in our super individualistic Western society mentality that we just can get in this mindset. It's about me and my relationship with God. It's about me and my relationship with God. It's about me and my relationship with God. And it's so much more than that. We miss out on so much. We miss out just practically. We miss out on the opportunity to help other people grow. So like where God has enlightened us to something, God has illumined our hearts to something, and, and, and we, we selfishly hold on to that because we're not thinking about, man, how could that truth benefit the person next to me? And then vice versa, because we're so focused on our path that we're not willing to let other people intersect our paths and bring us the truth of God's word or enlighten us to something new and fresh that God has given us. So, we need to not view this passage and the rest of Scripture, if you will, not as so in, not so individualistic, but view it as a body. How does this affect me and the body? Right. So, this affect the body, and then if, maybe a better way to say, it, how does this affect the body, and then of course me, how in inside of that body. So Paul is addressing the body. Let's continue on, verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortations, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So now we have Paul sketching for us how this new life in Christ should manifest itself. So we have by the mercies of God, this is transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then this is what it's going to look like, at least in part. This is what it's going to look like. So believers who live holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy for God, are committed to community. That's what we're going to see, and that's what we see, at least at large, in these verses, that they're not committed to individualistic growth or individualistic success and pursuit and all that, but they're concerned about commitment to a community of Christians, a gathering, an ecclesia of Christians, uh, a commitment to those. They do not live life for and unto themselves any longer. That's what Paul is saying. This is not just about you anymore. They become involved with the new people of God and they minister. He's talking about ministering to the needs of others with the gifts granted to them by God. And then of course love is the mark of Christians. The most evident insignia for the new people of God. So, Let's start in verse 3, kind of work through this little phrase by phrase, and hopefully draw, I think, what is a beautiful picture of uh, the body of Christ. Verse 3, he says, for the, by the grace given to me, very quickly, Paul is emphasizing his apostolic authority here. Uh, again, he's already done this. This is a constant theme we see in Paul's writings. And again, just to remind us, lest we forget, This is not Paul's suggestions or preferences. This is the authoritative word of God. So if we're not doing what follows, we are sinning. 
But if we are doing what follows, may grace abound in that and God's blessing abound in that. So going on, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, everyone among you. So this is addressed to every member of the community. And he's very emphatic about it. The same thing would be true for us. This is not just given to certain people. This is given to the entire community. The application would be for all of us. No member is exempt from this. So this means those who have committed themselves to the body, whether explicitly or implicitly, right? Does that make sense? Whether explicitly or implicitly, this is your gathering of believers here. Of course, we have chosen largely to do this explicitly. We want to know that we are committed to each other. But Paul is talking about in that gathering, what does this look like? And he's saying that to everyone. So now what he's going to do is to challenge as we go forward is our commitment and involvement in this family. Does that make sense? So he's going to challenge our commitment and involvement within the body. This would not just be for just us. This would be for all Christians of all time and their commitment to a gathering of believers. Um, now let me caveat something real quick from the beginning before we continue on. Uh, I've, I've heard this sermon pre, or this sermon, this passage, I, will, I should say, this passage preached. And it's always done, or not always done, I've just often seen it done in such a way that the application of it is limited to the times the church is, the church is gathered. So Sunday morning. So here's what this looks like on a Sunday morning. You're using this gift for this, and you've got the people, you know, out at the helping people in from their cars, and you've got the nursery workers, and you've got the teacher, and you've got the music, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's, it's talked and it's taught as if that's the, that's the only framework for which this to take place. And that's not Paul's intention. Paul's intention is that the body is the body 24-7, not just Sunday mornings, not just during home gathering. The body is the body 24-7. So when we think about these gifts, when we think about the application, if you find your mind just limiting it to this very small peephole of Sunday morning, you're missing out on the grander picture, the greater blessing, greater faithfulness, um, and all of the above. So I want to keep us away from that in our mindsets, okay? Stay away from Now, it does have, obviously, great application to Sunday morning, but it is certainly not limited and not even primarily that. So, everyone, to everyone Paul says this in Romans 12, 3, that you... That everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, first thought here, first handle to grab a hold of, is that all believers should have a sober, sane, sensible, and realistic estimate of themselves. All believers should have a sober, sane, sensible, and realistic estimate of themselves. I'm really thirsty this morning, so if it bothers you and we drink like every other word, uh, I'm sorry. I, f- I feel like I, I ate like a uh, Allegra D last night or something, but I didn't. Anyways, dry as can be. All believers should have a sober, sane, sensible, and realistic estimate of themselves. So the heart of Paul's exhortation to us consists of the admonition not to fall prey to pride, but to think soberly and sensibly with respect to ourselves. That we would not fall prey to pride. Believers are not to be proud. Right? We're supposed to boast in Christ, not boast in ourselves. I mean, you all have seen this before, right? And this is no one in here, okay? Uh, but you've seen this before where people think you know, the church like, just would not survive without them, right? Anybody seen that? Yeah. Yeah. Has anybody here ever thought that of themselves? <laughs> We've got a few honest people. I've got my hand up. I, I, I have felt that way 
And uh, <laughs> our drummer uh, has decided he is that. So. <laughs> uh, I've seen this. And, and if, if, but the thing is, it's typically not explicit, right? It's typically implicit. It's based upon their actions is what their actions are stating. Uh, I, unfortunately, have sinned in this manner myself. Uh, and, and even, I have to say this, guys, like, Renovation Church can go on without me. Uh, and uh, if anything, I, I would take that as a compliment in leadership. Um, and, uh, you know, we should not fall prey to this kind of pride. The, to think that the church can't live without our ideas or without our, our uh, actions or our serving or our teaching, whatever the case is, is just foolishness. Let's pause for a moment and consider this thought. Sober, sensible, realistic estimate of ourselves. If we're not careful, anything in our lives can become a point of pride. If we're not careful, anything in our lives can become a point of pride. Pride, uh, I don't have time to dive into this, but I think pride is almost always, if not always, caused by an internal heart issue, most likely an idol. Maybe you trust in your ability more than God's grace. Right? That would be a point of pride. Maybe you trust your own opinion more than the opinions of those who God has placed in leadership over you. I mean, there's many other positions, many other ways in which this looks. Um, just consider your life, how that, what a point of pride can be for you. Uh, understand, too, that pride does not always or even consistently manifest, manifest itself in arrogance. We tend to think of pride looking like arrogance. So if I'm not arrogant, then I must not have a pride issue. Um, many people think of prideful people as being loud people. But I would propose to you that, you, that pride can manifest itself in not seeking wisdom. Well, that doesn't look necessarily arrogant. It just looks like I've got it figured out. I'm going to do my thing the way I want to do it. It could also manifest itself in pity or self-pity or depression. Think a depressed person, prideful? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Think about it. It could also manifest itself in quietness. Oh, now, now you know, here, I don't want to do this. I don't want you to go thinking every quiet person is prideful, okay? Because sometimes they're just quiet and they're just, you know, kind of in their shell. And, uh, but sometimes it's pride. So Paul, talking about this pride, and thing that we need to be honest with ourselves is that this is a human temptation to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And this is a temptation for each one of us every single day. Um, now, let's think about this for a second. The world, this is why this is so hard. Because the world calculates this life oftentimes in terms of esteem. How do we esteem? How, how, how high is our self-esteem? I, I hear that all the time with parents and talking about their kids. And well, I just want them to have a high self-esteem. And Okay, so what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm just going to praise them and build them up. Okay, why don't you teach them to have confidence in Jesus? And not confidence in themselves, because their self-confidence will fail them eventually. But Jesus never will. So how do we, and how does that look? How do you teach that to a three-year-old? I don't know. You can figure that out. Uh, that's what the body's for. We can help each other in that way. But, uh, so, because then also, again, self-esteem, confidence in self is what then eventually leads to pride. And I think what Paul's getting here is that we ultimately have no reason to be prideful. Don't let the cat out of the bag too quick. So, how highly ought we to think of ourselves? How highly should we think of ourselves? Well, let's consider this for a second. We are made in the image of God, and yet we are reminded of our place in this world. And our place is rooted in the distinction between humanity and God. So just briefly, Romans eleven thirty five. It says, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? Again, this is speaking of God. We obviously do not fit in that category. Verse 33, just a couple verses earlier in, in chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I think when we see God there, we realize our place. Like, God's there. We do not have this depth of riches, of wisdom and knowledge. Our judgments are not unsearchable, and our ways are not unfathomable. God's ways are. But yet we're made in the image of God. Yet God has given us incredible responsibility, right? He's given us the, the, wor- the world to rule, to, to, to have dominion over the animals and, and such. But in the end, we're just humans. And God is God. And we should not think of ourselves more highly than we are. It's really easy for us to think of ourselves as such a blessing to the body that it could not go on without us. The proper response of a living sacrifice who is saved by the sheer mercy of God is to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I'll think about this one other thought. I mean, this is one of the primary areas. If you've been in church any decent amount of time in your life, uh, this is a huge point of problems in church. Uh, in the bodies is pride. Anybody seen that? Me? Am I the only one? No. Okay. Pride. People who think more highly of themselves. But we have to have sound judgment, mature judgment of, 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 of you know, good discernment of estimating ourselves. Critical thinking that reflects mature Christian thinking. So let me give you a clue. Let me give you a clue. If someone thinks too highly of himself, he probably or she probably does not have sound judgment. Make sense? So instead of thinking too highly of ourselves, we are to have sound judgment and estimating our place and who we are. And not to think too highly of ourselves. So if we're thinking too highly of ourselves, then the chances of the person having sound judgment is very slim to none. <clears throat> So as, as, as we think about church and as we think about growth in the body, we think about leaders, what's it look like for leaders to lead us? When we're looking for portraits of mercy and grace, we're looking for someone with sound judgment. And, and I pray that, you know, Rusty and I as elders here do not display this estimation too highly of ourselves. Um, but at, at the same time, not a false humility either. And I think this passage really helps us understand the balance of those two things. So, Paul tells us, are we not to think too highly of ourselves? So the question is, what do we do about it? How do we, how do we fix the problem? How do we respond? Um, by the way, if you don't think you struggle with thinking too highly of yourself, you, that might be a warning uh, right there. So, the problem is fixed when we understand where our gifting comes from. Where our good comes from. Next big thought or kind of sub-thought of the first one is that a humble estimate comes from an understanding of, and I think from the bigger picture we can also include a love for, the reality of how our gifts become ours. The reality of how our gifts become ours. Now in this context he's talking strictly about gifts and faith. Um, uh, theologically I think we could include more into this I think we can include all the good that we do is, falls in this kind of this category as well but for right now the context limits us I think to speaking of the reality of how our gifts become ours the gifts that we would use as a part of the body so it's interesting if you guys pull back out your Bibles and you look back at verse um, 3 and read with me, says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith, measure of faith that God has assigned. That's quite a peculiar thought there. A measure of faith. What is Paul referring to here by measure of faith? And there's, there's a wide range of interpretations at this point. Um, I'm going to talk about two. First one, the one that I don't necessarily think is the, what Paul's intending here. I think the second one is. But first of all, the, uh, the first one is kind of a, um, basically the idea that 
metron, that's the Greek word here for measure, may be defined as standard. So basically, according to the standard of faith that God has assigned. So in this interpretation, the idea is that believers are called on to estimate themselves either in accord with the objective standard of the gospel or with reference to the standard of their faith, Jesus Christ himself. So the idea here is that we would estimate ourselves up next to Jesus. That's the kind of the idea uh, in this interpretation, that it is the standard, and when he says standard, so this is Jesus, and we should measure ourselves up next to that. Um, let me suggest to you, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here. I think it is better understood as the ESV translates it here as measure or a quantity. I think it seems more likely that the phrase relates to the apportioning of an amount of faith instead of apportioning the standard of faith. Does that make sense? So instead of apportioning this Jesus standard, it's an actual apportioning of faith to saints. A differing amounts of faith given to saints. So I think Paul is speaking of the quantity of faith that each believer has. Um, John Calvin translates it this way, According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And I think, he, I think he's nailing it in that, at least in the thought. So the idea is that we are all equal before the throne, but we have different levels of faith and, can, and in conjunction, different gifts. We have different faith and subsequently different gifts. Now this does not mean, I don't think Paul is saying that, and I just want to kind of dispel this before we move on to talk more about why I think it's measure, but just real quickly, this does not mean that certain gifts always necessarily equal greater faith. So a teacher does not necessarily have more faith than the one who has the gift of mercy. Does that make sense? So the point is that it is God who gives the gift of faith and subsequently... The gifts of the Spirit, or it's the Spirit, of course, but obviously this is the will of God. So Paul, why? Why do I think that it's different, a, por- a portion of different levels of faith? Well, real quickly, from almost the immediate context, uh, look at verse 6 of chapter 12. Paul says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the portion of his faith. According to the portion of his faith. I mean, simple mathematics. If there are different proportions, then there are different levels of faith. So just immediately from the context, look at verse chapter 14, verse 1. Just a couple chapters later. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. That's accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Who is weak in faith? So clearly there is someone here that has less faith than someone else. That their faith is not as strong as someone else. A different portion or different proportion of faith. So in the context, I think it seems that Paul is affirming different levels of faith. There are those who are weak in the faith and those strong in the faith. Now, now hear me very clearly too as another point of clarification. I don't think this means different levels of savedness. Right? You can make up words. Not different levels of we are, but it is different levels of sanctification. Greater sanctification, greater faith. It is clear that those, that there are those in the body that have a deeper understanding and a deeper Christian confidence in these truths. In the truths of the word. We are told then from Paul, That each person is allotted a measure of faith. And this will be important as we continue working through these next verses. So what, here's the question, this kind of gets to the crux. What prevents pride from cropping up is a sober estimation of one's faith. This sober estimation is based upon the truth that God apportioned 
to each one a measure of faith. So this estimation of our is, a, is in, in a sense, a, is, is fueled by, is informed by the realization that any gift that I have, that the level of faith that I have is not because of my doing, it's because of God's doing. Now, let's think about that for a second. That's both if our faith is here and if our faith is here. Does that make sense? They say, well, well, duh, I got it. Like, yeah. But so we go, we're, we're thinking this, and I just want to give this small thought here, I think, of mercy and grace. And that is, we think, okay, well, this application is for those who think too highly of themselves, which is largely what Paul's talking about here, but there's an implication that we're going to get to in just a second. Explicitly, Paul is saying that we can't think too highly of ourselves because of the f- level of faith that we have is given to us by God anyways. So what are you bragging about? Like you can brag about God because God is good and he's been very gracious to you to give you that amount of faith. But as implication, if God has only given you this much faith, then do not despair. Do not despair. Trust in him. Submit to him. And he will raise your faith. Right? And growth and sanctification and all that. So, so by implication... God has put you here too. And you say, well, where does my role come into that? And yes, our role comes into that, right? We're fighting hard for the faith. We're working hard. We're we are beating the, all, all those things. But ultimately, it is God who orchestrates the trials in our lives. And it's God who decrees the events. And it's God who brings about, softens the heart. And, and it's all those things. So at the end of the day, if you want faith that's up here instead of right here, just submit to Him, right? And just say, God... Do with me as you will. Move my life. Move my faith. Grow my faith. Um, It's Him. So the point is that we have, our faith is a gift of God. I mean, we see that in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, right? It's a gift of God. We see, as we're going to see a little bit later in 1 Corinthians, that believers have different gifts. And we're going to see that later in this verse as well. This chapter. Now this does not necessarily lead to boasting unless one begins to believe that the gifts possessed are due to his own moral or spiritual superiority that's where we get in trouble we think i have this because of something i've done instead think about the room that that gives us to boast in god now 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 i know we can just go man i'm super faith like god the super faith because god is so good and what you're really trying to say is that you have super faith not so much that god is good Right? I mean, so we can play those games. But the point is, like, get, think about the reason that gives us to boast in God. Of what God has done in our life. Whether you're here or here. Just the fact that you have this much faith is a gift of God. Is it not? It's an act of mercy and grace. In summary, I like, again, I'm going to quote Calvin this is the second time I'm going to quote him one more time, just for the record. Uh, he says this, the meaning, in summary, he says, The meaning is that it is a part of our reasonable sacrifice to surrender ourselves in a meek and teachable spirit to be ruled and guided by God. And further, by setting up faith in opposition to human judgment, he restrains us from our own opinions and at the same time specifies the due measure of it, that is, when the faithful humbly keep themselves with the limits allotted to them. God has given us this much faith. And we ought not to think more highly of ourselves, but to, with sober estimate, realizing that it is God who has put me here. Or it is God who has put me here. So Paul has told us that we should not think too highly of ourselves. And he tells us that we have no reason to do so anyways. No reason to do so. So so someone who thinks too highly of themselves simply doesn't understand God in the sense that he is the one who has given them those gifts. So, just an example. If if you think too highly of yourself, it's, it's not... Okay, well, I need to start thinking less of myself. No, it's, I need to start thinking more of God. And then as a result, that, that diminishes our view of our ability and success, but it, 
it raises our boasting in God who is then doing great things through us. So, the Spirit gives us these gifts so that through the body of Christ, we would exalt the bridegroom of the church. He gives us these gifts, ultimately, that we would exalt Jesus. That's why this estimation of ourselves is so so important because then it affects the usage of our gifts and the usage of our gifts affects the body which ultimately affects the exaltation of Jesus by his bride. So if we overestimate our gifts and our faith then we might do things that someone else should be doing in the body. Well I've got this and they don't need to do it. So now what's happening is Someone who's much better, more gifted to do that gift, the body's missing out, and ultimately the exaltation of Christ by his body is lacking. So what needs to happen is we have to realize where God has gifted us and use our gifts there, and then encourage other people around us to use their gifts in the way that God has given, that God has gifted them. So together, giving our gifts to each other exalts our Savior. Second main point as we work through this text, second handle to grab a hold of is that we are one body in Christ, yet gifted to perform diverse functions. We are one body in Christ, yet gifted to perform diverse functions. Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. I don't think there's any more powerful of a metaphor that Paul could use than the metaphor of the human body. Uh, And I don't even understand the beginning of its complexity. We all have one, though, right? I have a body in here. Okay. Uh, Some look a little better than others, but we can understand this. Even a child, at least at some extent, can understand this metaphor. it has one body, but we have many members. Um, the healthy function of the human body requires that all parts be doing their job. All parts be doing their role. So Paul uses this same metaphor, but extended in 1 Corinthians 12. So I want to jump over to 1 Corinthians 12 and encourage you to turn your Bibles there. We're going to be there for a few minutes. But beginning in verse 11, let's read together. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Notice again the apportioning of the gifts, that the Holy Spirit is giving them as he wills. Verse 12 of chapter 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, And we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I have not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing... Where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need need of you. Or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, given more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that the member suffers all the members, so that, sorry, sorry, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? And do not all have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. First thought, all are important. All gifts are important. Just reading this, uh, one thing I love about this part of Paul is that that really needs very little commentary. Like, he really just kind of says it, and then it says it, and then says it again, and then says it again, and keeps saying it again, until you finally, if you don't get it, uh, I, don't, I don't, yeah. Um, Paul is very profoundly clear. Um, so there are those that look at others and say, I wish I had that gift. And Paul says that it's the Spirit that gives it. He says that all are important. We need to have more than, and here this is just part of Paul's point. We need to have more than just all gifts present, but all gifts present and being utilized. So the passivity of our gifts it just doesn't make any sense. There is no passive gift, right? They're all active. They're all being used in the body for the kingdom of God and for the betterment of the body as we seek to exalt Christ. <clears throat> What if we did not have the variety that he talks about here? What if we were all like a hand, you know? What if we were all teachers? Could you imagine? That'd be terrible. That'd be really bad. What if we were all the gift of mercy? Right? Like, I don't know if sin like, would ever be confronted in that passage, right? in, that, in that context. Now, if, I guess if it was exercised rightly, I'm making a general statement, I understand. What if we all had the gift of administration? Right? That would be awesome. I'd be cool with that. Because uh, uh, I hate administration, and yet find myself doing it all the time. Details, details, details. Ugh! Killing me. I just want to study the Word, pray, and preach. Like, that's all I want to do. And I got to worry about details. Like someone to keep my calendar. That'd be a phenomenal, like just, not that I'm not that busy. I'm not that busy. I just, someone to tell me, hey, you have an appointment. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, what if we were all administrators? That would be funny. Uh, I think what Paul, partially what Paul's getting here, and we're, we're glossing over this text, uh, but there's an intuitiveness to the body that should be present. I mean, think about this. Think about, I'm just thinking about this this week. What if, what would it be like if we had to continually coordinate how our body was going to function? What if you had to tell your foot to step every time you wanted to walk, right? Right foot, step, left foot, lift, push forward, step. I mean, what if we had to do that? I mean, there are, prob- there are certain people that have to do that. I, mean, I guess we could ask them. I'm sure that's not fun. Uh, talk, talk about doing two things at once. Like, that would not be possible. You're not going to be on your phone and taking steps, right? It's not going to happen. Uh, think if we had to do that. Th- I mean, think about um, uh, chap for a moment, or your young kids. I mean, they have to do this. I mean, think about as they grow, as they learn to step, and they have to th- they're, they're consciously thinking this. We don't have to do that. Um, or, you know, I can, I can remember some of the first times of chap and Hayden eating the little puffs, you know, like the little their first little finger food, and they're like, go to, like, right? You know, it's like this. How do I pick it up? And then eventually one, you know, then it gets to like, they got it, and then it's like, huh, you know? Uh, or it's, you know, where's my mouth? Or they get it to the mouth, and they can't just, you know, ha. It's just, it's like, and then it like falls. Uh, But, I mean, this is largely how bodies of Christ, like, the church functions. The hand's trying to do something, and it can't find the mouth. So the body looks disjuncted, it's ineffective, it's not exalting Christ like it could be. 
because we're not paying attention to the unity of the body in light of using the gifts that God has given us. I mean, think about this if you had to do this at work tomorrow. Think about at lunch in a business meeting. You're sitting there, and you have to tell your hand, hey, hey, hold on a second. All right, hand, grab food, lift, put it in my mouth. Ha. Okay, you can continue with your meeting. Imagine if we had to do that. Uh, or, or think even further. Think about this. If we had to somehow guide or think consciously about what was going on internally in our bodies. Right? Breathe. <gasps> Let it out. I mean, now some of us have to do that, right? Like we get angry. Breathe! <gasps> you know, that's not what I'm talking about. What if we had to, uh, to, to somehow consciously tell our stomach what to do? Huh? All right, so the sandwich has just entered into the stomach. All right, now release the acid. It begins to dissolve the food. All right, now cells, whatever, and now we're getting into territory that I have no clue. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe Jordan can enlighten us later. But, uh, you know, what's, uh, or, or our newest nurse up here can, and can, uh, can help us with that later. So, I mean, what if we had to do that? But, I mean, that's how the body oftentimes functions. The church body. All right now, hand, you're supposed to be doing this. Why aren't you over there doing that? Right? right? And we, instead of us all focused on Christ, focused on using the gifts God's given us for the betterment of the body and the ultimately exalt, the exaltation of Christ. But the healthy human body just works. The moment that any part stops doing its job, the moment that any part starts doing another part's job, the moment that any part of the body is rebellious or uncooperative, everything starts to break down. Everything starts to break down. Think, think of a little tooth. Uh, like, it doesn't matter how fast you can run or how quick your intellect is. When that tooth begins to hurt, it consumes you. Am I not right? Ow. Like, I can run really fast right now. My feet are awesome. I mean, it might help you forget about it for a few moments, but as soon as you stop running, uh, that tooth hurts again. It doesn't matter what. It doesn't matter how small. And Paul, real quickly, does not consider this a lowly image of the church. To the contrary, he thinks this is a grand picture of the body. This will help us understand the church, problems, and strife. These are all indicative of, us, indicative of your problems and strife are all indicative of us not living up to what He has called us to and using the gifts that which He has apportioned to us. But we don't think of ourselves naturally this way, right? We think of ourselves naturally as individual family units, right? I mean, this is, this is my numero uno, uh, and we forget about this over here, this larger group that God has called us too. Um, when one person's heartbroken, we should all be heartbroken, Paul says. When one person is honored, we should all feel honored. Um, if we're going to function well, we need everyone to function in their roles. Um, you know, more commonly, we think of church as a place where Christians just happen to show up together, right? And the body is so much more than that. The 24-7 living, like, so your body, right, does not take a break, like, on Friday. Like, it doesn't just shut down, right? Like, you go into hibernate, like, not even hibernation mode, but it's like, well, your body's done. No more bowel movements, no more breathing, no more blood flow. You just take a break for, like, two days, and then when Monday comes back around, everything, like, all systems go, right? right? The body of Christ does not do that either. The body of Christ is a living breathing organism that lives 24-7. So, I'm going to push the metaphor further than Paul's saying, but I think those are clear within the confines of Paul's intent of the text. So, next, and, and one of our final thoughts here. Use your gift for the good of each other, the furthering of the kingdom and the glory of God. Use your gift for the good of each other. 12-6, Romans. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, 
Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of faith, if service, so on and so forth. All right. So if God has given to each a measure of faith, and each is to serve according to the proportion of his faith, and there is a diversity of gifts in the body, then we are to find the gifts we have and then bring them to the body. This way the body will function properly, most effectively. So let's think about some of these gifts. Now real quick, we're just going to gloss right through these because we're going to have this class next Sunday where this is going to be talked about in much greater detail. Um, so prophecy. I think he's referring here to foretelling rather than, uh, rather than uh, future telling. The proclaiming of the truth. A discernment of the truth, so on and so forth. Again, we're going to talk more about these in details later. The gift of service. I mean, think about the book of Acts. Think about uh, when the giving, when the apostles were teaching and they were beginning to get sidetracked. And so this is where deacons came into the picture. And then later Baptists made them into elders. But, you know, uh, anyways, they were there to serve tables so that the apostles could devote their time to the praying and teaching of God's word. And the deacons came by to fulfill a need that was distracting them from that. So they had the gift of service while the apostles had the gift of teaching and leading and so on and so forth. So it's not because they were too good to do this or that we just needed to find some dudes to take care of the mess. It wasn't that. These were legitimate needs, both legitimate needs. And there was someone that God had ordained to take care of those needs and finding the right people to do those. You can look that up later, Acts chapter 6. We don't have time to look at it today. Um, but then moving on, teaching. He says, then teach. Like, if your gift is teaching, teach. Now, obviously, there's some requisites, I think, that need to happen here, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean seminary. But I think, uh, I mean, you can't just get up and teach about anything. Uh, obviously, there's clearly scriptural confines to that. Uh, today, we're going to talk about how to cook, and that will be our lesson today. And uh, Now, there's a place for that. Today, it's probably not the place for that. So, teaching, exhortation. Let's talk about this. This is funny. I was kind of studying this a little bit. Uh, this, the exhortation, this is those who encourage others to live out the gospel call in their lives. I mean, that's largely the goal of it, someone with the gift of exhortation. This is the gift, I think, that is largely absent from the church today. The gift of exhortation. In church history, you guys get this, in church history, uh, I'm thinking uh, more um, colonial days, United States in particular, uh, there was actually official exhorters in the church. Guys who, this was like, so you have like the elder, you have like, you know, the gift of mercy, like this person, this person's exhorter. Well, get this, this is no joke. Has anyone um, heard of, I, got, I wrote his name down here, uh, no, I didn't. Oh my gosh. Christy, you remember his name? Back, Bacchus? Isaac Back, Bacchus. Isaac Bacchus. Alright, so in the colonial days, he, at the age of 15, became the church exhorter. Now that's just really going to blow your mind. Right? 15, and he's got this gift. Now that's cool. I mean, if, yeah. Anyways, 15 years old. You can take that for what it's worth. And he has the gift of exhorting. Now this is how this would play out for them. So you have the teacher or the pastor who gets up and delivers the sermon. The exhorter's job was to get up after the sermon and apply the sermon to the body. So literally what would happen is, you know, Matt would get up and preach. He would say, this is what the word means. And then exhorter Isaac would get up on the stage and say, Sister Susie, you're going to have to listen to this particular point. You're not managing your kids very well. And that would be a point of application for the body for you. And then deacon so-and-so. Here's where your pride, if this was the sermon for today, I've noticed that you've been very, very prideful uh, at this point in your life. Uh, and that's how they would play out the role of exhorter. Now, I, I know, like, I'm seeing faces cringing, right? Uh, but imagine, I mean, like... Talk about, wow, like, if we were to set someone loose like that in the body, what would happen? Um, what? They'd get hurt? Yeah, they'd probably get lynched. 
the church, and we have went through our fourth exhorter for this season. Uh, anyone else ready to take on the role? So, the exhorter. Uh, Paul says it's an essential part of the body. It's a required part of the body. This is God's good gift to the body. For us to have people that are going to encourage each other on towards the life of gospel living and gospel identity that He's called us to. The gift of giving. This doesn't mean that there are only certain people who are supposed to give. And I don't know that He necessarily even uh, strictly means financially here. Maybe we can debate that later. This is those who have a special gift of giving. Those who also, I think, could potentially have the special means as well. There are those there to give liberally. Liberally. Give it. Um, you know, when God says a cheerful giver, He enjoys a cheerful giver. That does not mean hilarious, for the record. Uh, that's a bad use of... of uh, anyways. Giving. Leadership. They are to lead with diligence, mercy, with cheerfulness. This doesn't mean that we all don't need to be merciful. Right? This doesn't mean that we all don't need to give. It doesn't mean that we all don't need to teach in some capacity. It just means that there are certain things that God has uniquely gifted you with. Uniquely gifted you with. So all of these different gifts, all are important. All of them have their place. They all need to be present, honored, affirmed, and encouraged if the body is going to function well. If any are absent, the church suffers. So think about that. Because so some of us are going, well, I don't even know what my gift is. Let me clue you in on something, right? That means that the body may not be benefiting from your gift. Meaning the body could be exalting Christ more greatly, more effectively. If you discover that gift and begin to use that gift for the body, for Christ. And what a beautiful picture. And I don't, I don't say that to you to make you feel guilty. I say it to encourage you to, hey, jump on this. Man, figure it out. Ask someone to help you. And, uh, and man, the body will just be so encouraged through this and so much more I can say about that. So if any are absent, the church suffers. There are many churches, you know, if we just take a kind of a broad view of our landscape. There are many churches that uh, their teaching ministry is awesome and everything else stinks. Well, that's not good. There are, there are a lot of churches where their teaching ministry, ministry stinks. But, man, they've got lots of good givers, and they've got lots of merciful people. Um, but the body's suffering in both of those instances. Um, now, obviously, the metaphor has its limits, right? So, the body, we can push that too far. Like, I never think about my foot as being arrogant. Do you? Oh, you arrogant son of a gun. Like, what are you doing? Right? Like, we don't think of that. But when the metaphor gets applied to the church, this is where arrogance, pride, conceit, lack of cooperation, self-centeredness, that's where they all come out. That's where this comes out. And so what we have in verse 4 through 8 is really a commentary on verse 3. So 4 through 8, this is what this looks like for us to not think too highly of ourselves, but to have a good estimate, an understanding of where God has gifted us, where God has has the proportion, that, the proportion that God's given to us, and then to exercise that rightly, and then when we're doing that, then that leaves room for others to use their gifts as God has given them. Let's go back to verse 3. It says, For through the grace given to me, as I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allowed, allotted to each a measure of faith. So here's some kind of concluding points for us. If we are doing this right, as Paul is talking about here, if we're doing this right, then we are going to call out of other Christians this measure of faith and full proportion. So if we're doing this right, we're each going to pull out, drag out, encourage out, however you want to look at it, whatever's necessary, this full proportion of the faith that God has given to all the people that are around us. 
So if I see this person, they've got the gift of mercy, but they're not necessarily using the gift of mercy. I'm going to go to that person. I'm going to say, hey, let's, I see this gift in you. Let's, let's, let's just talk about it. Let's study it. And then, and then let me encourage you to use this in the body. You have the, the gift of exhortation. Let me, let's talk about this. Let's talk about how Scripture informs the gift of exhortation. And how, how can we best use that in the body? So it's pulling out of that, portion, that person a full portion of their faith. It's letting them exercise their gift as God has given them and God has called them to. Next thought, God's glory is in all of us working together, encouraging each other, exhorting one another, caring for each other. And God's glory is displayed in the proper functioning of the body. And it all comes back to each of us not thinking too highly of ourselves. And instead, finding our rightful spot to contribute to the body. Calvin, in closing thought, says, Everyone desires to have so much himself, so as not to need any help from others. But the bond of mutual communication is this, that no one has sufficient for himself, but is constrained to borrow from others. I admit, then, that the society of the godly cannot exist except when each one is content with his own measure and imparts to others the gift which he has received and allows himself by turns to be assisted by the gifts of others. So, as we move forward, I want to encourage you to, uh, of course, attend the class next week. But if not, the book... It's a great opportunity. Uh, now the book's not going to solve, because this is, again, it's not about you and a book. It's about you and the body. So the, the book is just to help us more quickly understand gifts as God's Word defines them, and then you begin to utilize them. But it's, it's really, guys, it's the body where your gift is affirmed, where your gift is discovered, where your gift is grown, where your gift is matured, where your gift is shined, brought forth. Um... So, you know, you got spiritual gifts like tests that will help you determine which one is. That, that's a great starting point. But it's really with someone in the body who's walking close to you, who knows you, who can say, yeah, dude, I, I think you gamed the test. Like, that's not you. You're not a teacher. All right? Just saying. Right? You like to teach. That doesn't necessarily mean you have the gift of teaching. Or, dude, you're not merciful. Right? Like, you said you scored a real high on mercy, but you are not. Dude, you're a jerk. All right? Uh, like, so it's in the body uh, where we, which is a not, yes, this is an example of who you are. Yes. So, we have, we have this opportunity, guys, as a body to, first of all, be more faithful to what God has called us to. But then the benefits and the blessing of that is just marvelous. And think about what we're missing out on. Think about as, as we are more committed to using our gifts in the body and, and being a part of more than just our own little family unit, but how does that look like in the body? Uh, and and just, just imagine. Um, I know that I am ministered to regularly from people who have very different gifts than I have. And I don't know what I would do without those gifts in my life. Uh, so the gift of mercy. to see I don't have the gift of mercy, okay? If you don't know that, I, I try. Uh, I'm the jerk, right? but uh, like I have people with the gift of mercy in my life, and they exercise that regularly, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, so with that, I want to encourage us to do that. As we sing this last song, I want to encourage you to reflect. Man, just begin here. If you don't know what your gift is, if you don't know how God, if it, and, and two, two things. If you don't think you're utilizing your gift well, then ask God to help you do so. If you don't know what your gift is, then ask God that this would be a beginning point to discovering that. And He give you the grace, and then in that process, submission to Him to discover and utilize in the days to come. Um, and then if there's anything else in your heart, please be in prayer about that as we worship God. So let's pray, and um, we'll continue in worship, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, um, thank you for the opportunity to... Um, to know more clearly the plan that you have for your body. 
Father, that you didn't just tell us to be this church and that we got to do all these things right and blah, blah, blah. But Father, you gave us guidance and direction. And you gave us words of truth. Father, um, let's pray that um, in the days to come that we would be faithful in discovering the, the ways in which you've, you've gifted us. For some, you've gifted us to be eyes and some mouths and, and some hands and some feet and some arms and some legs. And, and Father, we need to discover what it is that you've called each of us individually to do and how we contribute to the body. And uh, Father, I pray uh, that we would do so faithfully and that as a result, Father, we would see your great blessing in this place. And Father, we, uh, we love you so much. And Father, I pray in these next few moments that you would open hearts uh, to your call on their lives. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you all, uh, would you all stand with me?